Father, we thank you for your son's sacrifice upon the cross. We thank you, Father, that we're forgiven. Father, there is no other thing, no other one that we put our hope in, our trust in. God, you're faithful to us, and we're grateful, God, that you've called us sons and daughters. You are our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Why don't you guys turn and greet each other. Say hello to someone next to you. Yeah. Okay, do you want to get the lights? All right, good morning. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Living Stone Calvary Chapel. Uh, that was a lot of fun, worship and communion this morning. and uh, Continue to have fun as we study through the Word of God. If you want to turn over to Revelation chapter 17, that's where we're going to be at this morning as we continue our study. I have a bunch of announcements here for you. Um, the first is, uh, you guys going to be here next week, Debbie, Eric? Okay, next week, Debbie and Eric Moore are going to put together a short PowerPoint presentation uh, about our trip to Africa, and they're going to come up and share, and uh, last time uh, we did that, it ended up being like 25 minutes long, so they've assured me that it's only going to be five. <laughs> Just kidding, we haven't even talked yet, but does that sound all right with you guys? Sounds good. And they'll share a little bit about our trip. It was exciting. We're glad to be back. God protected us and gave us a great opportunity to minister. Um, Debbie was able to teach in the women's prisons and help out with the worship. And Eric even taught in the men's prison. And God gave him uh, a message to share. And uh, the pastor's conference went, went really, really good. And we all were healthy. Uh, and we're grateful to be back, to be back with you guys. Um, there's, uh, like I said, in, there's... The, the announcements coming up is in February. There's going to be no uh, church potluck because we're doing the church planning dinner. Um, that is uh, at the uh, second announcement there, the annual church direct and planning dinner. Please sign up, guys. All of these things are sign-up sheets there in the information counter. We, we, we need sign-ups in order to be able to try to figure out the right amount um, to, of food to purchase for each event. And um, the, the, that dinner will be here at the church from 5.30 to 7.30. We'll share the, uh, the vision and the direction for where God's taken us in this upcoming year. Um, I'm excited about it, and God's opened some doors for some things for us to do as a church, uh, to be able to reach in the community. Uh, um, and I'll just briefly let you know that it's about, this year the focus is going to be about serving our community. And, you know, we, we evangelize, we can evangelize, we can do outreach, and, and, um, and those are things that God's called us to do and, and uh, that we need to do, but we also need to be serving our community and looking for opportunities to do so. And um, I want to lay out uh, 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 some goals and some vision for that in this next coming year and some of the things that God's put on our heart as far as how to accomplish that, uh, a really ministering and serving to the people in our community. 
Um, so please come to that and sign up for it. Also uh, coming up is a children's outreach, a Valentine's Day party for the youth grades uh, first through eight on Friday um, uh, the 12th here at the church from six to eight. It was really cool. Last time we had uh, a little over probably about 35 kids come and uh, we'll hope to have at least that many again. It's an opportunity for the kids in the Sunday school to bring their friends, their neighbors, uh, as well as have a celebration here together. There will be pizza and all other kinds of fun things going on. Some of the the, the senior high youth group kids are going to be here um, uh, doing some dancing stuff for the for the younger kids. So uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, looking forward to that. Here's a, a neat opportunity. We've done this in the past. It's a lot of fun. Even if you don't bowl, it's pretty cool just to come and watch other people bowl as we have fellowship together at the bowling alley. But couples bowling night is coming up. Um, it's an evening out for adults only, February 26th. There's a sign-up sheet, and the reason we need the sign-up sheet for that is so that we can reserve the right amount of lanes for us to all go bowling. And if you've done that before, who has gone in the past? Just show of hands. Talk to any of those guys. It is a lot of fun when we get together and, and go to the bowling alley and do that. And um, so please come and do that again. By the way, they have awesome nachos there. I mean, they are, they're healthy, too. The burgers are good. I've never had a burger. Maybe I'll have a burger this time, but... Uh, good food, good fellowship, and, and bowling. So, Curtis, where are you at? And uh, can we have, like, uh, could, the, could the Women's and Men's Ministry maybe, like, get some um, gag gifts for the, the, like, the best bowlers? Yeah. So there's prizes now, too. The last message here for you, the announcements, is Freezer Meal Workshop. It's a women's ministry event. Uh, you can see the details there. Um, is there still time to sign up for this? Or one more week of sign up? I think that's what some of the spices and stuff are there on the table that has to do with that, right? I don't know much about it, so speak to Vicki, uh, women's ministry coordinator and extraordinaire, and she'll get you all lined up for that. With that being said... Revelation chapter 17. Pretty excited about this chapter as we kind of get into some of the prophetic things in relationship to um, stuff that uh, perhaps um, we, we maybe don't necessarily always have great clarity on. But if you go through this chapter... In context, verse by verse, when we're talking about like the, the, the harlot, the woman, and the woman who rides the beast, and the beast, and Babylon, and all of these things. And as you study through end times events, you may hear about this kind of stuff, but lots of times you're left going, what the heck is all this stuff? Well, this chapter really gets down to the, if you will, to the nitty gritty of it, and we really begin to break it down and see exactly what these things are, see how they apply to our lives today, and also... Um, Maybe see what's going on now that's setting the stage for things that I believe God's showing us that are going to take place in the near future in regards to the time that we live in. Now, as we continue on into chapter 17, what we see is that John is again telling us, or he's telling us again um, about how he's been taken by an angel. And this is kind of a repeated thing that you see. John's taken here, and he's taken there, and he's brought up, and he's shown this, and he's shown that, and he hears these things. And this time in chapter 17, he again is taken by an angel who shows him, he says, the judgment of the great harlot. 
And this angel is one of the seven angels whom we had read about a couple weeks ago back in chapter 16. One of these seven angels that were uh, uh, the ones who were sent out from the throne room of God, from the tabernacle there in heaven, to pour out the last of the judgments, the seven bold judgments. Now, when we looked at chapter 16, to keep it in context, back in chapter 15, verse 1, we were told that with these final seven bold judgments that these angels would be sent out to do, we're told that God's wrath will be complete. In other words, in them or through them, it's going to bring a completion to the seven years of tribulation. And we saw that in relationship to a specific time frame, but also in regards to complete as in total or in a percentage. And we look back in relationship to that into the previous judgments where they were poured out or they had an effect on only a percentage of like the earth or the trees or the water or the people on the earth. But in regards to being complete, coming to an end of events, uh, bringing a closure to it, but also in regards to these judgments, these bold judgments have a total effect, 100% effect on the things that they're being poured out on. So as we studied through chapter 16, we read about how these effects of the bold judgments, as they're complete or in total, that they are specifically directed at the Antichrist, remember? And, and at those who had, had, have at this time chosen to worship and follow the Antichrist. You know, they'd taken the mark of the beast upon them, and they had sworn their allegiance in doing so, but also had openly forsaken and denied God. Consequently, God in these judgments... By bringing these final set of judgments in the, in the beginning of it, we'll, we'll bring a, we're told, a foul and loathsome sore upon those who had taken the mark of the beast. Then with the second and third bold judgments, both the salt and the fresh waters of the earth were affected, again, in total, and uh, telling us that the blood at that point, or the, excuse me, the waters of the earth at that point will become like the blood of a dead man. Um which uh, kills all marine life. Now, uh, I don't want to get into it. My mind goes all kinds of places where I'm like, well, what exactly is the blood of a dead man like? But, you know, those kinds of graphic descriptions are there and illustrations for us to, to kind of think upon, but uh, I'll let your imagination run wild for yourself there. And um, After those judgments, the, 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 the second and the third, we know that there's a fourth and a fifth judgment that's poured out. And these are judgments of light and of darkness. And um, uh, the first judgment, the fourth judgment is poured out upon the sun. We're told that at that time the sun's going to burn with such a great intensity that it'll literally scorch the men of the earth with fire. And then the fifth judgment, the judgment of darkness, is, is poured out directly upon the throne of the beast of the Antichrist and his kingdom and saying that it will become full of darkness. And I love that aspect as God deals with the throne of, of the Antichrist and of the beast at that point in that way because we're told that Satan and his ministers of, of, of darkness disguise themselves of angels of light and, 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 and really they're ministers of darkness. And, and, and it's in one sense, God's really just going to reveal them for what and who they truly are. And even though this darkness, whatever this plague or this judgment is, even though it's not exactly explained to us or we're not told what we are told is in revelation chapter 16 verse 10 is that when this judgment the judgment of darkness that's directed at the the throne and the kingdom of the antichrist is that when that comes 
those who are of his kingdom, those who have chosen and sworn their loyalty and their citizenship to the Antichrist, it says that they will with this begin to gnaw their tongues because of the pain that it brings them. Wow. Yet, in all of this, even though we read that there's great pain, even though we read that there's great suffering, we're also repeatedly told in chapter 16, if you remember, that the response of these God-haters is to blaspheme the God of heaven rather than repent and be saved. So, the sixth and seventh judgments at the end of chapter 16 come out. One is on the great river Euphrates, causing it to dry up. And this will make, we're told, a way for three kings from the east, the kings of the east, to come down and unite with all the other kings of the earth for a final battle against God at a place called Armageddon. And we'll read about that when we get to more in detail when we get to chapter 19. And then with the seventh judgment, there is a voice, John says, that will come forth from heaven, a voice that will be heard by all saying this, three words, it is finished, it is done. And with this voice, we're told there will be great thunder and lightning filling the skies as the earth will then experience a mighty earthquake, one we're told like has never ever been since the beginning of time, since men have begun to dwell upon the earth. And this quake specifically will be directed at the Antichrist and his kingdom, the city, the capital city of Babylon, in that the earthquake will cause it to be divided into three parts, and all the other cities of the nation will fall to the ground. All the other cities and uh, nations of the earth will fall to the ground. Furthermore, we're told that the mountains of the earth, could you imagine this? When I came back from Uganda, which is relatively a flat place, and we're driving in to, to uh, uh, um, Canyon City, and as you, you're driving on some of the front roads, you see the majesty of the mountains that we live in. I think that we often take for granted because we see them every day, but when you're away and you come back, it's like, wow, it's awesome. But the Bible tells us that all the mountains of the earth will crumble with these earthquakes crumble to the ground in conjunction with 75-pound hailstones falling from heaven upon the men of the earth. And still, we're told they'll blaspheme, they'll blaspheme the name of God, refusing to repent. Now, as I, I, I bring that up because, again, I want to remind us, especially in relationship, I think, to the message that God's already speaking to us about glorifying Him. Because as we look at these things, this is not just an issue of unbelievers when we talk about hardening our hearts to the will and the desires of God. Because often when it comes to glorifying God, the truth is in my own life, um, uh, it, it's not just about fulfilling the call that God's placed on my life, whether it's being a pastor or being a husband or being a father or being a good employee or, or whatever these things are. It's not always just about those things in regards to an issue of maybe hard in our heart. It's not always an issue of going, well, I know what God's word says in regards to God says, you know, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, shall not have any gods before me, you know, all those laws that we know that as good Christians we do. It's not always about that when it comes to the issue of glorifying God. It's really an issue of, of, of hardness of heart where God leads us by his Holy Spirit. He speaks to us personally, individually, and he goes, hey, listen, you know what? I don't want you to do this thing. 
or I want you to go here, or I want you to say that, or I want you to, to, to live your life in this way, or I want you to work here, or I want you to treat this person in that way, or I want whatever God is, it's an issue of us hearing as we're being led by God's Spirit and then responding in a godly way. You know, you look at that in relationship to what is a godly way and God's nature in us. You go to Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, where it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Gentleness. All of these things. And you know, all of these things are attributes that I personally desire in my life. I'm sure you desire those things too. I hate it when I, when I, when I react or act in an impatient, unkind, unloving, angry way. I hate it. And I desire to be more like God in that nature that I have in Him. But it's not just for the sake of being someone who's known as someone who's loving, a pastor who's loving, a father who's loving, a husband who's loving, or kind, or gentle, or exercises self-control. It's not about that. It's not. It's about glorifying God when those things are manifested through my life. But when it comes to this issue of looking at this in relationship to these people at the end times in chapter 16 who harden their heart against God, harden their heart against God, and when God speaks to them and, and, and ministers to them and reveals himself to them, they, bl- he bl- they blaspheme his name and we go, well, yeah, they're evil people. But you know what? As Christians, when we refuse to glorify God, we, in a sense, are blaspheming His name. We're not representing Him, bringing glory to Him by the way we live or the things that we do. We, too, blaspheme the name of God. Maybe we do that so to our, to, for me, to, to the church body. I'm blaspheming the name of God to the church body when I don't live my life in a way that glorifies God. When I don't treat people in a way, when I with my wife, with my with my kids, with my coworkers, with the person at Walmart, you know, all of these things, all of this aspect, seeing someone in need. The Bible says you see someone in need, and you yourself have the ability to help them, and you refuse to do so. The Bible says, "Woe to you." Why? Because we're not glorifying God. We're hardening our hearts against him to a God who is faithful, to a God who is just, to a God who is righteous, to a God who has forgiven us and gave his son for us so that we might live a life that glorifies him. So as we look and reflect back on chapter 16, as we move on into chapter 15, I think the very first thing that we need to do is go, let us not harden our hearts. Let us not blaspheme the name of God. And if God's speaking to you this morning, to me this morning, about these things and these areas of our lives that we have done this, let us repent. Let us turn away and go, God, it's for your will. Often we react and we respond because we, we want to protect ourselves or we think another way is better or, 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 or uh, we go, it's just too hard or we're fearful because we don't think that we can do it. And you're right, we can't do it in our our flesh, in our strength, but we can do it through God who lives inside of us. You see, that's why God's put His Spirit inside of us, so that we would glorify the Father. So that the fruits of the Spirit would be manifested in our lives. So that the gifts of the Spirit would be exercised among the body. Now, as we move on into chapter 17, I want to point out that as we've been studying through the book of Revelation, I've referenced this chapter many times. This chapter here, chapter 17. 
mostly when we are in chapter 13. And, and we're going to kind of be bouncing back and forth between here and chapter 13, because in chapter 13, we have symbolism. We have um, the dragon who is referenced and spoken of. And we know that the dragon in chapter 13 is symbolic of Satan. The beast also is mentioned in chapter 17. The beast with seven heads, you remember, and ten horns, who is symbolic of the Antichrist, who, who, who is a world leader at this time. And, and, and lastly, there's the, the second beast that's mentioned, who is a, a symbolic representation of this literal false prophet who will be raised up and works for the Antichrist to oversee the one world religion that will be instituted at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. And it's this it's the second beast who will will command and and make people worship the beast, the Antichrist. And I, and I point this out because in this chapter, now in chapter 17, there are the same exact types of symbolism. And it points us to the same things that we've really studied out so far. Furthermore, in this chapter, there is really more explanation, more detail given to us about the symbolism. So once again, there's no reason for anybody to come to the book of Revelation and speculate in regards to what do these things mean. You know, and, and, and I've listened to so many different studies on the book of Revelation. My mind begins to twist. I don't even know where I'm at sometimes because there's so many different interpretations as men have so many different opinions about what these things mean. But God says, you don't need to have your opinion. He says, I'm going to tell you what these things mean. And so there's no need to speculate since we're told exactly what they're symbolic of. In fact, if we, if, 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 if we keep the things that we have previously been told about in context with what we're being told now, you know, then all we need to do is really go back to the Old Testament like we have done that, that account these, these, exact or seem, these exact prophetic end-time events, and we get one clear picture. That's the beauty of the Word of God. It fits together perfectly, every bit of it. A picture of this, this is what it looks like. A picture of how the Antichrist and the apostasy and the harlotry against God that he will lead. The picture is we actually get to see how they, in the end, will be put down by our Lord, our Savior, our King, Jesus Christ. And man, that's such a hopeful, wonderful thing because the Bible tells us the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world when? Right now. Even though the Antichrist is not on the scene, the spirit of the Antichrist and this whole world system that we're a part of and all the false religions that, that are in this earth and fill it today that, that, that draw us away and tempt us and, and influence the world in such a negative, dark, evil way. There's coming a day, there's coming a time, according to Revelation here in 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, where Jesus is going to just be done with it. He's going to put it all down. In light of this, we see how these three chapters together give us a detailed account of how the Lamb of God, the Lion, will come to bring a complete end to Satan's kingdom once and for all. I don't know about you, but the truth is that Satan's kingdom has an influence on me today. I hate it. It does. I fall prey to it. I'm weak. And so I long for that day, not only when this sin nature of mine is going to be gone, but when the enemy's kingdom is destroyed. Because he is a liar, and he's a thief, and he's a murderer. And I don't know about you, but he, I have loved ones who are being destroyed by him right now. And this is a hopeful thing to know that God's going to bring an end to it all. 
And in doing so, chapter 17, it really put the focus here, first of all, on, on and, and if you're keeping notes, I'm going to break this down kind of systematically. So in chapter 17, in light of God bringing an end to Satan's kingdom, he first puts the focus here in chapter 17 on the religious systems of the world. Okay? Think about that in relationship to even now and what we've talked about with the one world religion coming forward. He brings it in. He puts a focus on the in to all the false religions, uh, false religious systems of the world. The, the, the harlotries and the spiritual idolatries that are committed against God now and will be in the end as in the tribulation period, which will ultimately be personally led by Satan. Then in chapter 18, it's going to go on in detail for us and prophesy about the political and economic parts of Satan's, Satan's kingdom that will fall. So we know that today there's the spiritual aspect of things, the, the false religions out there. But you know what? I don't know about you, but I look at all the political and economic things in this world today, and I go, they're not God-fearing. They're greedy, self-seeking, evil people. And, and they use, just like, just like these false religions are a tool to control people, we see that these political systems, you know, we are, we are fortunate to live in America, even though there's a lot of corruption here. But you go to some of these third world countries, even like we were in Uganda, where you have a, a president by the name of Museveni, who, who, who basically says, even if I don't get the popular vote, I'm still staying in to try to take me out. You know, these dictator types that influence and bring corruption and, and they control people, they oppress people. Well, chapter 18 is dealing about that, the political and economic parts of Satan's kingdom that also will fail. In other words, all the temporal things of this life, ultimately with the world, the people of this world, the mankind of this world, they really defer their hope to. And we see that in our own society today. How many people do you think in the world today really want to be taken care of by the government? It seems to be at least more than 50%. They put their hope in a political and economical system and not in God, our Savior. And, and chapter 18 is about God bringing an end to all that, going, listen, there's nothing else that you're going to be able to put your hope and faith and trust in. He, he brings it all to an end. And then, and then in, in chapter 19, finally in chapter 19, there is this prophetic record. I love chapter 19. The prophetic record of Jesus' return to the earth in order to evict Satan once and for all, the Antichrist and the false prophet who establishes his kingdom here on earth. So as we move on in chapter 17 and we begin to read about these future judgments, John in, is invited, like I said, to see... Um, which has been recorded here also for us. And in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, verse 3, this angel, he said, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, the woman riding the beast, as, as, as some of that, that phrases in, in, that you may have heard before in regards to end times events, it comes from this right here. And I saw the woman sitting on the beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman, verse 4, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full 
thing, you would think, wow, she's got, she's so beautiful. She's got purple and gold and pearls and this golden cup. But in the golden cup, it's full of abominations and the filthiness of her, of her fornication. And on her forehead is, is, and on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, and this is a title, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us understanding, wisdom, knowledge of you, your will for our life. God, teach us so that we may be waiting expectantly and waiting in such a way like Curtis reminded us of last week. Waiting in such a way where we're not just watching for you to come, but living actively and expectantly fulfilling your purposes upon this earth as we wait for your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as you look back to verses 1 and 2 here, I want to point out to you that one of the main reasons, and, and, I, and, and maybe you think this way, I, I don't know, I do, but I go, there's a lot of symbolism here. Why? Why does God have a lot of symbolism here in Scripture? And really, it's the same reason for why Jesus came speaking in parables. It's, it's so that people may understand and sometimes we think, well, symbolism can be confusing and maybe even in, uh, uh, maybe lead us astray, but that's only when it's not brought into context. But when you think about it, one of the main reasons for why symbolism is used in these passages is so that all believers, God's concerned about the church in total, right? From day one, those who became the, the, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost until the very last one who give their life to Christ and then we're all caught up together. However long that'll be and however many people that will be, that's the total of the church. That's who this message is for. And God is concerned about each one of us, each generation, each specific period of time, whether we live in a modern society or we live in a culture where things are not the same or, or, or historically speaking where things have, have changed and advancements. He, he wants to speak to a way. He wants all of us, all believers in any period of church history to be encouraged by what we read here. And so the, symboli the symbolism transcends a lot of those barriers that time and generation and culture may not be able to specifically uh, reveal truth to us. And in order for us today to be encouraged by what we read here, we need to remember that the true church of Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and, and, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, is that we, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, we symbolically are always pictured as the pure bride of Christ, right? And we have to keep that in mind in order for us to receive the encouragement that we see here with the rest of the symbolism. Because if we look at that in contrast to the false religious system that's being spoken of here in chapter 17, if we look at the fact that we are pictured as the pure virgin, we see here that the false religious systems that we read about here, they're always depicted in Scripture, here also in, in chapter 17, but anywhere else in Scripture, they're always pictured as the harlots. Which is nothing more, a harlot is nothing more than an immoral person an immoral person who has um, willingly abandoned what is good, what is true, in order to prostitute themselves for a personal gain. Now, ever since the time of Jesus, 
or ever since the time that Jesus first established the church, we know that there has been a harlot in every generation who has sought to seduce and to persecute God's people. If you want a better definition of, the, of, of what a harlot is, go to, go to the, 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 the writings of Solomon in the book of Proverbs, and he warns his son about the harlot. You know, how she prepares her bed. You know, and she's, she's, she's got sweet spices, and her kisses are like honey and all these things, but until the trap is sprung, right? And so, so not only is a harlot an immoral woman or a moral person who sells themselves for personal gain, they are also someone who seduces into that immorality, into that um, evil. And, and, and so a, a harlot, in regards to every generation of the church, we see that they seduce and produce and, and persecute God's people. They have an evil end in mind. Those, according to verse 2, if you look here, and a little later on, we read it again in verse 6, but those who seek to become drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. That's graphic, isn't it? That this harlot and, and, and what she represents is about praying and destroying true followers of God, seducing them away, persecuting them. But what we see in the book of Revelation is that this all, this seduction, this persecution, the harlotry, we see here in verse seven, in chapter 17 that it's all going to come to an end. And when Jesus comes to crush, when Jesus comes, he comes, we know, to crush among one of, the, one of, men of the, many other things is he comes to crush this worldwide apostate religious system that has been established by the Antichrist. The worship of the beasts that is enforced by the false prophets. And just like there always has been a harlot who has persecuted God's people, we see that there also has been, according to what we read here, a Babylon, right? If there's a harlot, there has to be a Babylon. And this Babylon directly refers to what I already mentioned a little bit, that political and economic system that is established by self-seeking and evil and greedy men. Those who, by means of their political and economic power, attempt to influence and control the minds and destinies of people also for their own personal gain. So just like the harlot who is contrasted in Scripture by the pure bride of Christ, so too is Babylon, this city, if you will, of harlotry, contrasted in, in, in Scripture to another city that we'll read about a little later on, a city referred to as the New Jerusalem, God's city, right? And it's spoken of in Revelation chapter 21, and there it's called the city of God. And this city will ultimately be, we know, the eternal home, the dwelling place for us who are waiting as the pure bride of Christ to be wed to the Son, to Jesus. And consequently, each and every generation of believers, even us now, we're told that we must enact, we must seek to keep ourselves pure, we must seek to live separated lives. Separated from what? Separated from this, this, this worldly system in a political and economic way? 
but also from the, 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 the false religions of the worlds that are out there. It's not about just keeping ourselves pure and holy in a righteous kind of way, because God says he does that for us through the blood of Jesus. But what are we separating ourselves? What have we been separated from? And what have we been set apart to? And for us who make up what looks to be like the last generation of the church in total, for us who are living in these last days, I think we have to heed the Bible's warnings because of that even more so and be even more aware and more steadfast to keep ourselves pure, to keep ourselves separated from the things that are not of God. And some of the most clear cut of these warnings found in Scripture are written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I want to read you three passages this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes and he says, man, he says, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he says, he expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. I mean, that's a warning. That's a warning that we who are of the faith, our ears should perk up and go, oh my gosh, in the last days, in the times that you and I are living in now, some will depart from the faith. How so? He says, by giving heed to deceiving spirits and to doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Also, we know that Paul issues another warning to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And where Paul writes and he says, he says, but know this, again, the same kind of terminology says that in the last days, Timothy says, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men, he says, will be lovers of themselves. Does that not sound like what we're living in? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. He says, man, they have a form of godliness, but they deny his power. And we're warned when we see this, when we know this, and keeping ourselves separated, keeping ourselves um, uh, uh, set apart unto God, he says this, and he says, and from such people turn away. Turn away, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loading them down with sins led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's warning because these are the people that he says are going to be in the church. And I look around at the landscape of the church today, globally speaking, and I go, oh yeah, no duh. It's true. And one last warning in 2 Timothy also, chapter 4. In verses 1 through 5, Paul closes his letter to Timothy saying, I charge you, therefore, before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearance and in his kingdom. So he's, he's telling Timothy, as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, which every one of us are called to be and to do the same thing. In light of all these things in this morning, he says these simple words, preach the word. He goes on, now I want to, I, I just, uh, 
I've got to do it. It's such a sad thing to see the church today. I hear of new churches starting, and I read about things that, that they're into and what they're doing and what they're promoting and what they're propagating. You know what? In, in none of their descriptions about what they're about or what they seek to be doing or what they hopes that's going on in that service as you come to be a part of it, I never hear this. I never hear it. Preach the word. I never heard church say, yeah, we're starting a church, and we're about the word of God. That's not it. It's like that's not a selling point, if you will, on their, their manifesto. It's all these other things that the world seems to, to, to say we need to have to kind of attract us in like flies or bugs or mosquitoes that are flying to those little blue lights. Right? And I, I say that because I don't want to be critical. I, I'm trying not to be critical or, or condemning in any way, but they miss the main thing. And in the end times that we're living in, in this, this, this where we're being warned, we got to be careful. And that's why Paul, he goes, man, I charge you. I bring you before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ about these end times and these things. He says, he says, Preach the word. And he says, be ready. Be ready to do it in season and out, all times. Convincing, rebuking, exhorting with all longsuffering and teaching for a time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelism. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, be warned. Guys, this is what we're living in. We're living in it. Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's 2,000 years later, and he's given him these warnings, but how much more now is the, 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 the day of the Lord near to us? And this false religious system, this harlotry, the mother of all harlotry, is, is infiltrating the world, it's creeping into the church, and, 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 and we've got to set ourselves apart. We've got to be warned. We've got to take up arms, so to speak, to guard our hearts, to guard our minds, to look out for one another, and to look out for our fellow brothers and sisters who are in the world today, and to protect them also, to tell the truth. If you see me going astray, if you see me being led, led to, to deceiving so that I may depart from the faith, please come get me. Please slap me around if I need it. Be warned. Now, as we dive into this chapter, the first thing that John says that he was shown, according to verse 1, he says there was this harlot who sits on many waters. And if we look ahead to chapter 15, we're told that these many waters are also symbolic. Chapter uh, uh, to verse 15, I mean, we're told that they're symbolic of all the peoples of the world. So as we take that in context, and we, we, we come away with this, this idea that the woman who is referred to the harlot four times in this chapter has, according to verse 2, he, he says, this harlot, she's committed fornication. I think you guys all know what that is. Specifically spiritual idolatry, though. With the kings and the inhabitants of the earth in order to bring them underneath one evil banner. The banner of ecumenicalism. 
Now, this term ecumenical, it comes from the Greek word oikumenu, and it specifically refers to the entire habited world. But in the English, it refers to this, cooperation among many, many various faith groups within a single religion, typically Christianity. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, seriously, doesn't that sound good? I think that sounds really good. Cooperation among the various faith groups within a single religion. And I think about that, it's like there's, uh, you know, if football, right? There's many players on the field. In order for them to be successful, they have to what? work together. They have to cooperate. And how often does the church just step on our own feet, put a knife in our own back, and make us disabled for the work and the power of God here on this earth because we're just like not getting along, right? We're not cooperating. So in that sense, I see, man, that's a good thing. However, when we look at the modern ecumenical movement, as it progresses to what we read about here, eventually and ultimately to this one world religion, true ecumenicalism, we see that the, 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 the religious oneness is currently and will be established only as people compromise. And that's nothing that we're ever called to do, to compromise. Because in compromising, you turn away from the truth. And ultimately, when you turn away from truth, you turn away from God. And under the banner of ecumenicalism, it's all for the sake of unity. And this woman, and, and you know what, this is a word that's thrown out there so often today. Well, we just need to all get along. And yeah, we all need to get along, but not while we abandon the truth. Not through compromise. We all have unity because Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he's the one we follow and the word of the God is the one that brings us together because it's the common denominator. It doesn't matter what that denomination says, what this denomination says, or even what we think. It's what God's word says. This is where we find oneness. True ecumenicalism. Not like the world is offering and where the world is going. And this woman who is called the harlot, we see that she's nothing more than this worldwide apostate religion. That's who the woman is. That's who she's symbolic of. This worldwide apostate religion that is, right now, going on, and will lead many people through it to rebel against God. And not only that, not only to rebel against God, but to give their love over to Satan and to the worship of the beast. And we can't look at this as just futuristic things in a prophetic sense. It's going on right now. Now, before we move on, how did this happen? All right. I'm like right in the middle of a point in my notes and everything, too. I am, I am going to end with that. <laughs> May God rebuke you. <laughs> if the worship team wants to come up, I'm going to try to, to bring this all to, to thoughts and, and some kind of closing sense. Um, yeah, and you know what? We need to stop because these are things that we just don't want to gloss over. We don't want to just, to just um, 
they need to be given the attention that they need to be given. And so we'll go more into detail on the rest of these things, and you just have another good reason, hopefully, for coming back next week and, 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 and continuing on. But we'll, we'll finish on. This chapter 17 is dealing with this one world religion that, that will be that we're currently moving to. I mean, we're on the brink of it, are we not? If you think about what's going on in the world today with the, I don't know what this, what banner this one world religion will fall under, but it sure looks like it's going to be Islam, doesn't it? And I don't know that, that's just opinion, and I always tell you when it's just my opinion, the Bible never alludes to it or makes mention of it, but when you look out the world scene today, you can truly understand and go, I can see how this one world religion will evolve out of what's going on with the spread of Islam throughout the world today, especially when you look at some of the things that are tied to it. And the truth is, guys, it's not always something that's being forced upon us. Nobody's come to America and lopped off anybody's heads for the sake of Islam that I know of in our country, but what I know is, is there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people committing, converting to, to, to Islam in the United States. There are more mosques going up worldwide i heard it's like one a day or something like that more than that i think where there's mosques coming up and being planted everywhere and at the root of it truly is is a false religion we don't need to get into all the doctrine and everything that it is but but there is a true thing and 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 i, I, I and and uh, there's so much more i want to say and it i'm just going to stop with this but before we move on i want to point out that in the book of revelation the woman is portrayed a woman is always portrayed symbolically in three different ways okay the first is in chapter 12 of the book of revelation verse 1 and the woman is spoken of there and she's representative of the nation of israel okay the other time that a woman is used symbolically in scripture is here as a harlot and she represents the religious system and those who are part of this religious system and those who rebel against god but then if you look over to um um Chapters 19 and chapters 21 of this of the book of Revelation, there's a third woman that's spoken of symbolically. She's spoken of, and she's representative of the bride of Christ, the Lamb, the church, which are those of us who have received God's grace, who've received God's forgiveness through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And one of the interesting things about what we see in this is that these women are all, and what they're representative of is the fact that God sees all people in one of these three categories. If we look at the symbolism, we see, we see that God can classify all people in one of these three categories. Meaning you're either a Jew, one of God's chosen people, or you're a part of the church, which is the pure bride of Christ, and you're waiting to be wed to God's only begotten son, or you're an apostate. A traitor, that's what that means. One who is against God and against God's plan for your life. And I'll end with this. For my life, for most of my life, yeah, it's getting close to not being most of my life. No, I'm older than I think I am. So almost most of my life, I was a traitor to God. I was his enemy. And Jesus makes it clear. Lots of times we don't think, we don't want to be classified. How dare you classify me into one of these groups, right? And we think that there's this place that we can stand that doesn't make us part of these things. Well, I'm not for Christ, so the Bible says that I'm against him. There's no middle ground. Luke chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me.
And he says, those who are not for me will scatter. Father, I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who does not know you, who is still warring against you, that they would wave the white flag of surrender and come into your love and your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you would use us this week to be your witnesses, to glorify you, to tell others about you, 